welcome to the Stoke Connect podcast series. Our podcasts are designed to not only connect with our staff, but to also motivate, inspire and educate on trending topics in our industry, plus so much more. You'll discover about your fellow colleagues, we'll explore some industry-relevant topics, and share useful tips on well-being, health and safety, as well as career and personal development. To hear our latest episode, go to stowaustralia.com.au or head to our Facebook page to hear the latest podcast. We hope that you enjoy the next episode of the Stoke Connect podcast series. Well, hello and welcome. My name's Craig Pendleton, and it's my pleasure to be sitting down today with uh, Luke Richmond for our latest podcast. So Luke is a former soldier who has served with Australia overseas. He's also gone on to climb mountains, row the Atlantic Ocean, walk the Gobi Desert, base jump, and somehow managed to write a couple of books along the way. Uh, Luke is here today to share his story and talk about things like resilience, goal setting, and risk, and, and to talk about some of the lessons he's learned along the way and how they can be applied to everyday life. So Luke, thank you for being here. Ah, it's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Too easy. Well, look, you grew up a boy in the country and then you then went on and joined the army as your first step into the real world. Yep. How did you find the army and do you think it set you up and taught you some good lessons for, you know, later civilian life? Yeah, well, mate, I grew up um, sort of in the Northern Territory in central Queensland, a bit of a country kid. So I grew up with those, you know, country morals and values, but also grew up with that patriotism that's, you know, part of the backbone in those sort of um, areas. So I've always wanted to join the military even before I started high school and that just marinated all the way through till I was 17, graduated high school and I was off. So I joined um, just as I turned 17 with mum and and dad's permission, signed up. And yeah, even though I only did four years in the infantry, it was a great starting point to life for me because it showed me this whole other aspect of life that I didn't know from the country. You learn about lots of good toys, lots of rifles, lots of machine guns and lots of explosives and all that fun stuff. But you also get that camaraderie in the military as well. So some of those bonds, you know, with those lads, especially the ones you go on operations with, you know, are still with me today, you know, as a, as a full grown adult here, you know, almost at 40. And uh, we've helped each other out along the way, you know, after the army as well. So those friendships are a great part about the military life. Uh, the operations you do obviously can be very rewarding. They can be quite taxing on you as well, not just physically, but the whole mental health aspect of it. So depending on, you know, where you want to go in the military, they're could be some consequences on that side of things that you might want to weigh up, you know, before you get in. So you have to be quite robust and resilient and um, really sure of what aspect of the Defence Force you want to get into. But, you know, in saying all that, mate, it was a great start to life and it's something I still recommend, you know, to anybody that's a little bit lost coming out of school or even in, in their 20s and 30s. If you're not sure what you want to do, just get in there, do a few years, it'll straighten you up and at least get you fit, make you earning some money and, and learn some new skills for life. So... I still highly recommend it. Cool. Okay, you like to set yourself some big goals. You know, you've you've talked in your books about rowing oceans and climbing mountains and doing other fun stuff like that. You know, what's the process you go through when you're actually, you know, planning all these adventures? Can you just talk us through that a little bit? Yeah, well, I guess it, it starts with inception. So what, what do you want to do? So what's this crazy idea that I'm going to come up with next? And typically these days they're, they're fairly massive, they're you know, a bit outside the box. So whatever it is, right, that's what I'm going to try and put together over the next 12 to 18 months, sometimes a lot shorter if they're small adventures, maybe six months. 
once you've got the idea, um, try not to be dissuaded by how much it's going to cost you because these big adventures typically do cost a hell of a lot of money. But just say, yep, I'm going to go do this. And then I work backwards. So, all right, what, what, is it, what is it? Is it a mountain climb? Is it a kayak? Is it a row? Is it a technical climb? What skills do I need to accrue first? So, for instance, one I'm doing a, a few year planning on is a South Pole crossing using kites and skis. Never skied, never kite skied, any of that. So this is all in process over the next couple of years, getting the skills to be able to do that type of adventure along the way. So whatever it is, okay, we've got to get the skills first. Then you can start looking at the finances. So, of course, you're going to pour in every single dollar that you have yourself, but often I need some corporate backing as well, you know, bit of sponsorship stuff. So you'll start looking at that. And that is probably the hardest and longest process of the whole thing is going out, pitching your idea to potential sponsors, getting shut down, going at it again and again and again until you find a company or a particular individual where there's going to be some synergy and you can give some value of what you're doing for them and their company. Uh, so that takes a long time. Once you've got that, then you can go into the actual logistics, nuts and bolts, planning, spending on the adventure itself. So there's a hell of a lot to it, but these are, yeah, these are adventures after 15 or so years of doing this stuff, they're, they're massive. But if you're talking, say, a small trip, um, say even a couple of years ago, kayaking to Murray, super easy trip. You can fund it yourself. It'll cost you maybe three, four grand. You buy a cheap kayak. You get down on the river and you just survive on the river, catching fish. You know, there's Woolworths every four days. You don't need sponsors. You don't need any of that stuff. You just go and do it. So those ones are real easy to pull together. All you need is the time off and, you know, the ability to go and sit and float down a river for six weeks. So depending on the trip, there can be quite a lot to it. So I have heard at the bigger end of the spectrum, like if you wanted to climb Everest, for example, you could be looking at a $100,000 <coughs> expedition. Would that be a fair assessment? Very easily. I mean, with the Everest realm especially, it's, um, it's such a specific goal, but it is monumental. So it's three months in the mountains, highly skilled. Uh, the logistics around it is massive. You need lots of Sherpa support. Yeah, all of the fundamentals of base camp is living there for that long. And to do it safely, if you're not a professional climber, you need to go and work with commercial outfitters. So these are some of the best guides and best companies, adventure companies in the world. They're going to make sure that they turn you around if you're not up to it. They're going to read the weather to make sure it's safe. And they're really there to, to get you up and down safely, not necessarily to get you on the summit. That's going to come yeah. back to you. Um, but yes, the probably the cheapest you could go, even a professional climber to do Everest these days might be in that $30,000 mark, going bare bones, rough and tumble, doing it all yourself as a solo, right up to 110000 US for sure. Wow. It's a, it's a monumental business for Nepal. It's one of their biggest incomes as a country. Um, numbers are limited, but they are getting busier and busier every year. So there's a bit of a bottleneck these days if there's only, say, small weather windows on that mountain. Um, and, you know, it's one of those reasons when I do look at adventures these days, like, right, do I want to go for, say, a huge mountain or, say, an Everest attempt and you're looking about finding $100,000 from the market somewhere. But for $100,000, you can also go and do a dozen smaller micro adventures that could be very rewarding to yourself. So you, now it's all about weighing up the work you have to do to get that sort of money and what you want at the end of it. But yeah, if you're looking at Everest, uh, it's going to be lots of training and lots of money. Fair enough. So with all the stuff you do out there with adventures, you're really maximising your you know, personal potential. 
What do you think holds a lot of people back from actually achieving their full potential in life and not necessarily adventures but just with relationships, with their work, you know, with their family? Um, Just looking from your perspective, what do you think is holding a lot of people back in that regard? First and foremost, it's probably just perception. It would be their own perception of themselves and the environment. So this is who I am. I can't go and do that because I don't have the skills or I don't have the money or I don't have the ability. You know, that that perception automatically just crosses off all those dreams and goals that they think they're not fit for. So if you can if you can change that and you get that out of the way and say, look, okay, you can do this if you want, then you can start putting in a bit of a roadmap to going to do it. So anybody can do this stuff. Anybody can go from off the couch to having the physical fitness and mental ability to attempt it. And anybody can go from no money in their bank to having the money saved up over a few years, whatever, to go and do the adventure. And anybody can find the time, whether you're working seven days a week in this sort of, you know, caught on a wheel type scenario, can't get off, you can change that. So these are just all choices. But perception is typically the biggest barrier I see. I can't do this. I don't have the ability and that's just, that's just a mental trigger that you can change in one second if you want to, or you can let it inhibit your life for mm. your whole life. But yeah, we can change that. And I, I know you're an avid reader. I've seen some of the things that you post. Um, do you think that's a good starting point for someone who may be in that rut is to basically pick up a book and start educating themselves? Absolutely. It's, it's one of the free sources of knowledge in the world, and you can find books on any single subject you want. But it also changes your whole landscape and understanding of the world. So when I come out of the out of the bush of the Northern Territory, I was a particular type of individual. I was just call it a country bogan type kid, you know. Yeah. Then you come out of the military, you know, you're a country bogan that knows how to how to shoot people. So you haven't really evolved too much. And it wasn't until after the military, I'm still only in my early twenties, that I really became an avid reader. And then I read typically everything. So I'll read some fiction, I'll read some science books, I'll read some politics, I'll read, you know, from left and right, centre, everywhere, because you need those conflicting ideas to come up with an understanding of the landscape of the world, no matter what the topic is. So reading is the best way to start doing that. And these days I set myself that goal every year to read 52 books, to try and get a book a week in over the year. And that's typically easier if I go on adventure and get snowed in for a week in the mountains, you can pump through a lot of reading. But by doing that, I know, so the guy that I am at the start of the year, he knows this and he thinks this about the world and he has this particular perception about everything and he thinks he knows it all. By the end of the year, after getting another 50-something books in, that has just totally changed. Some of those ideas might still be rock solid. Others might have gone from right to left, left to right. But reading is an absolute necessity in life. I just have to give it to everybody. Yep, 100%. So I just want to go on now to talk a little bit about resilience. Mm. Um, with the sort of activities you're into, you you tend to get a lot of knockbacks, I'm guessing, when you're seek, seeking sponsorship. Mm-hmm. You might overcome all the hurdles, finally get to a country, you've got your first day on the mountain or on the river, wherever you are, and then the weather just comes in and it all turns pear shape. you know. <sighs> And you might even just have to pack up and go home. You know, how do you pick yourself up and keep moving and not get too despondent when circumstances like that arise? Yeah, that, that type of scenario has played out. Oh, what am I looking back on now? So, so over the 20 or so big expeditions I've done to date, what I consider failures in that sense would have been four or five. And they in the, in the beginning, that first one, that first failure crushed me. 
you know, cause you really take it personally as, as this, this ultimate failure of yourself, even though you did make the right decision in turning around and, and giving yourself a chance to go again another day. But it, it doesn't get much easier, to be honest, especially after you, you've done that, that whole build up process I was talking about, you've got the sponsors, you've convinced them that you're going to achieve this massive goal. You've trained to be ready for it. Everything's good. You get over. So perfect example only, was it two seasons ago in Nepal? You get over there to climb a mountain. You've had your eye on for 14 years. So this is Amadablam, this beautiful beast, just under 7,000 metres in height, technical rock and ice, cameraman on board, you know, everything just set and ready, strongest you've ever been. And we get to a point, it was almost about three hours from the top um, it's right up on this uh, huge cornice of ice. Probably the only time we've managed to rest in this sort of 12-hour summit push. Freezing conditions, you know, blowing a gale. Cameraman had gotten himself some frostbite on the fingers. My wife, Elise, was with me at the time. This was one of her first biggest and most, you know, challenging climbs. So she was quite fatigued. Um, the Sherpas that he had in support sort of wanted to turn Elise around. And the other Sherpa wanted to push on with me to the top. And keeping in mind, this is a mountain I've had my eye on for 14 years. You know, love this peak. And I went over to the next fixed line. So it's a fixed line to the summit from this point, real steep, clipped on. It's just me and my Sherpa, uh, Mingma, and we're going to push on. And I looked back and I saw Elise sitting there just in the snow, totally fatigued. I saw my cameraman there pounding out his hands, trying to bring his fingers back to life. And they had one Sherpa with them to help him get him get down safely. And from this point on the mountain, it was going to be at least 14 rope lengths of rappelling to get back to the safety or the relative safety of camp two. And this is sketchy as rappelling. So all that in those few seconds I was looking at that scenario, you just, everything changed. So it went from my ego got just put in my back pocket. Ego got shut down. You looked at the whole safety aspect. If one mistake happened with the other Sherpa Kami, Elise, or my cameraman, Yok, they were in a real bad situation. You know, so I unclipped, turned around, and we all got down together nice and safely back to Camp 2 and off the mountain. But you have to try and reconcile all that back at base camp when everyone's feeling good, his fingers come good over a week, so that's all happy and you're sitting there and everything's fine, and you ask yourself those what-if questions. Could we, could we have pushed on? Would that have been fine? And I've learned over the years to try and not go down those rabbit holes and just focus on everyone's out and safe, Mountains aren't going anywhere we can go back. And what lessons have I learned from it? And I guess, you know, what was I then? I was 34 years old. And I can honestly say that, that moment was the final death of my ego. You know, I had this monster ego coming out of the army in the early adventure days. It's all about world records and glory and fitness and strength. And I think that mountain there changed it all because it wasn't about me anymore. It was about my team. And we all got down safely. So that was the big lesson I took away from that scenario to help me reconcile the failure. It must be such a fine line too because you need that element of ego and drive and ambition to get you to the point where you're, you know, approaching the summit. But then you've got to balance that with the safety of the people around you and your own safety. Yeah. And, um, yeah, there's Absolutely. a lot of dead people up on those mountains who – who didn't turn didn't around. Yep. And, and, and I've seen it everywhere, yeah, especially in the base jumping world. I was in for a few years just trying that out. If you've got a big ego mixed with a lot of risk, then mixed with a lot of, say, sponsorship or whatever liability Commercial over here where you're yeah. trying to get the video, get the shot, you know, people just die, you know, it's, it, especially more so in that base jumping world because the risk is so, you know, 
so big. There's not really many injuries. It's just always death. But in the mountains, especially with solo, heavily sponsored climbers, you know, pushing hard, just pushing a bit too far, dying. And yeah, after all this, the even though I have that five-year philosophy trying to drive me all the time, um, dying is not worth any of it. You know, none of these big adventures are worth clipping your life short. You want to get to that next one and maybe come back and try it three or four times if that's the case. So, you, it's, so it's all about balance. All about balance. And I'm getting better and better at it as I get a bit older, a bit wiser in the mountains. Good to hear. Um, I might just touch on something that was in your first book. Um, you were quite open in that book about some of the struggles you had with drug use. I think you were working in construction at the time, probably just making a few, you know, poor life choices, you know, young and all the rest of it. Um, And you've obviously turned yourself around and you've got the whole adventure thing to focus on. What would you say to people who might be in a similar situation now? They might be young, they might be partying too hard. Um, What would you say to them, you know, in regards to, what they should be thinking of and how they can turn their lives around. Yeah, mate. I mean, as I mentioned with your, like the first point you brought up about joining the military, there was a consequence of that mental health aspect. So when I, when I did get out and I took off overseas, just looking for this freedom and adventure again, um, I didn't quite have my mind squared away. So I sort of got into this heavy, heavy drinking culture when I when I hit Europe and especially living in London and that flowed onto, you know, the recreational drug use and then that flowed into, you know, very habitual drug use. And, yeah, it culminated in, yeah, that bloody cliched rock bottom moment where, yeah, you wake up in jail. Um, yeah, I was getting hosed down by the police because you're covered in your own filth and, you know, the shame in the eyes of those police officers just, you know, crushed me. And I had to make that decision right then and there. So this wasn't the guy I was supposed to be. This isn't who the military produced or my family raised. So, you know, I, I had to make a change. And I, I was lucky I had my army buddies to call on. So I gave one a call. I said, mate, I've got to, got to get out of this whole scenario, this, this addiction and this whole lifestyle. What can I do? And, you know, he told me to go to this place in Thailand called uh, Tiger Muay Thai, a big mixed martial arts training camp because he was a, a bit of a fight trainer. And so I... Booked my flight then and there um, the day after I got out of jail on, on that Tuesday. And uh, I was still in a bad way. I finished all my drugs in a taxi on the way to Heathrow, which is uh, not a very proud moment, but uh, flew out to Thailand, started getting sick on the plane, and then went cold turkey for two months straight, training my absolute butt off um, six hours a day of Muay Thai. And so getting back onto your point of what, what people can do, the biggest advice I've given a lot of you know, soldiers who might be suffering with PTSD or getting into that alcoholism and addiction world is that environmental shift. If I had stayed in London, even if I had probably gone to rehab and tried to put in all these different habits and structures in place, the temptation in the environment was too strong there and I know I would have failed. But by pulling myself out and landing in this totally new environment, new people around me, I could literally reinvent myself overnight. So I wasn't you know, Luke the addict when I got there, I was just this dude coming from Thailand, former soldier, training Muay Thai. And so you could just start again. So that was, that was a very powerful thing. And if you can do that in today's world, say you're in Sydney or wherever you are struggling with these issues, think about your environment, what's around you that's keeping that stuff going and start changing it. Whether you pull yourself out or you have to change your environment. That's the best advice I could give people. So probably to use an electrical term, it was like you needed that circuit breaker. Absolutely. Yep. 
Otherwise, the, you know, when it starts talking about serious addiction, there's biological pathways that are now so robust, they just need that chemical fix. You know, your whole habits and all, everything you're doing is fixed around that that one act. So you've got to break that. You've got to break that symmetry or circuit breaker, as you call it, and start again, rewire it. And probably ask for help. In your case, you asked your army buddies. Yep. But yeah, just reach out and, and ask for help. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's a tough step to make. It was easier for me because I already had that rapport because he's the guys I served overseas with. We've been through a lot of a lot of shit together. But again, I think that's the hardest step for a lot of guys, especially, is just you know, yeah. just ask for help. Someone outside of your environment who's gonna have no bias and just give you some good advice. Yep. Sounds good. So looking back on all your adventures, is there one situation that was particularly sketchy where you thought in hindsight, geez, that could have gone <laughs> and ended very badly? You know, can you pick one, one oh, there's, situation? There's a whole bunch. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> as, you, as you do, you learn on the job. What was the first big sketchy one? Um, I mean, on, in the early, early ex- uh, expeditions about climbing the Seven Summits, so we had some issues in West Papua where – our porters, we had to hire about 19 porters from the local tribes going through West Papua. So we had about 19 of these guys and they brought along all their friends, family and relatives, anyone not doing much. And they're, they're quite primitive over there. So still wearing wooden penis tubes, bows and arrows and stuff. But to, so long story short, one of these guys got crushed in a rock fall and uh, they, it's very simple over there. It's an eye for an eye. So they wanted to kill one of us for, for one of them. And so we pretty much had to do a little escape and evade to get out of there. But we ended up getting detained or sort of held captive in a, in a shipping container for about a week uh, just outside this little town called Tamika. It's a, it's a bit of a saga, that one, but it did make the news. It's probably the most news coverage I've ever gotten for all the wrong reasons. But um, So that was a little bit sketchy, but I think I was fresh out of the military at that stage. I still had this monumental ego that we were talking about. So we're talking borderline international incident here? Oh, yeah. No, the embassies were all over it. My, my mum spent about two grand on phone calls to the embassies and all over India trying to get us out of there. It was actually a bit of uh, political pressure from a Thai climber who was with us through the Thai royal family that ended us getting, getting, getting us out of there. And we ended up getting smuggled out through this mine dressed as miners. I mean, it sounds so ridiculous. <laughs> at like two in the morning to a waiting chopper that flew us down to Tamika onto an airliner straight to Bali. So, yeah, that was probably the first semi-sketchy one, but I didn't see it as that because I was fresh out of the army, knew I had the skills to either bug out through the jungle by myself for a couple of weeks and eventually be okay, but I wasn't this guy that was thinking too much about the team at that stage, okay? Um, I took up the, 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 the land of base jumping. That's probably as sketchy as it can get. In that world, I don't know if people know much about base jumping. Base stands for buildings, antenna, span, which are your bridges, and earth. So those are the four objects in the acronym, and that's where you ideally try and go and jump as a base jumper. You're trying to get these four objects. And uh, the whole idea of base jumping is you jump off an object, your parachute opens just like in skydiving, but you need that parachute to fly straight away from the object because you're so close to it. If it opens to the left or right or, you know, heaven forbid, at a 180 degree straight back at the object, so a cliff or a building, that's when you're going to have a lot of trouble and you're going to die. And I had that twice. So it was early on in my jumping career, which I think is what saved me because I was quite fresh out of training. I was just hitting lots of objects. I had great you know, reflexes at that stage. Uh, it was on a cliff, first of all. I had a full 180 after opening with twists in my parachute, coming racing back towards this rock face in Thailand. You have to reach up above the twists in your lines and grab some lines and try and steer this thing away from the rocks first, which I managed to do just without hanging on to the stalactites. 
And then I'm flying out over the ocean. I had to kick out these twists and then finally turn it again and land back on the beach. Uh, you know, safe as, nothing wrong with me. So you, you sort of look like, okay, that could have been death or absolute safety and perfection landing. So that was, that was a big lesson to learn there because I let my ego get the better of me again because up on that face at the time, there was a couple of professional jumpers. We all assessed the jump. It wasn't great. There was a bit of crosswind and I didn't really feel like jumping, but the other two guys being professionals, like, no, nah, no, nah, she'll be right. They chucked some backflips off, had good openings and landed down the beach. So then I jumped, being the inexperienced guy, poor body position, parachute opens backwards and I nearly die. So it was that point they said, right, I will never make a decision based on yeah, people around me or whatever's going on. So it's always got to come back on me. And I think I would jump that exit, so that particular cliff, another dozen times, and I climbed down without jumping on five of those occasions. So to climb up was like an hour and a half rock climb. To climb down was about two hours because it was slower, and I did that five times instead of jumping after that for that safety reason. So that was a good lesson to learn. Oh, mate, I can keep going if you want more uh, <laughs> sketchy <laughs> moments. Even uh, it was a couple of years ago, me and a buddy – tried to row to New Zealand. So this is my second big ocean row. And uh, we set off from Eden and we get about 200 Ks offshore. I'm on the rowing deck at the time. So we're just doing two hour shifts. I'll row for two hours. He'll row for two hours, day and night. It was my go, unfortunately, on the deck. Uh, the Tasman, compared to the Atlantic where I've done my first ocean row, is a beast of a thing. The, the swells are coming at you from all angles and we just got caught off guard. The boat gets lifted up, turned over, smashed and sort of capsized down the face of this wave. So I was on the rowing deck at the time, so I get flung out into the water. I sort of get stuck underneath the upturned vessel for a while with my foot stuck in the rowing plates. I thought I was going to drown. I'm tangled in lines. So I had to sort of pull my foot off, rip out that bloody foot plate get up and then the boat wouldn't right itself. It had some ballast issues and I'm sort of hung up on my safety line because the worst thing you could ever do is get separated from your vessel. So we're hooked on at all stages. And But at that point, the boat wasn't righting itself. So I had to unclip, which is the biggest no-no ever, shimmy around to the back, clip back on, turn the boat on its rudder. Then we had to empty the boat of water, fix what was broken and ultimately make the, the hard decision to turn around and self-rescue. took us about five days to get back to Australia. So that was another sketchy little moment. But, uh, you know, at every sketchy moment, I'm learning new things along the way. So I take them uh, as and they come. I'm guessing you always try and go in with a plan B and a plan C for when things do go wrong? You absolutely have to, yeah. As much as you can. You can't see what you can't see, but the more that I've done this stuff, the more you know what can happen, especially with Mother Nature. Um, people are sort of the unknown. You don't want, don't know what people can do, but nature's sort of predictable. So we knew we had the fitness, we had the ability and, and, and the skill set to self-rescue at that stage. Yeah, so we didn't want to call out bloody coast guards and choppers and abandon the boat and cost hundreds of thousands and all the rest of it. We, we did have that ability to self-rescue and that's something – we always try and have in place on all of our trips. So you never get to a point where you can't get yourself out of trouble. That self-rescue is so important. So you always have to either upskill, spend a bit more money, get in some more Sherpas, plan your approach a bit better, get a better boat when you go and try and row the Tasman, or just, uh, yeah, pick the weather a little bit better. Yep, sounds good. So I'd like you maybe just to talk now about your philosophy around having a five-year plan. Um, most of the people listening to this podcast are just trying to, you know, plan their work careers. They're trying to plan their relationships. 
what's your philosophy re- regarding a five-year plan? And then maybe you can share your five-year plan, your current plan with us, mm. just so we can get an idea of what you've got coming up as well. Yeah, absolutely. This uh, The five-year sort of outlook on life, that came about during my seven summits attempts, so that whole year of climbing, where unfortunately along the way, I saw a lot of climbers die in that year. And even though I'd seen... Uh, you know, dead guys in the military, they were bad guys. So these are militia and you don't have any connection to those guys. So you didn't really confront death then. But when we were in the mountains and I saw these climbers, you know, literally frozen up in the mountains, um, they were you. So that connection w- was was very strong. And so that got me even just thinking about death a lot more and how, you know, it can just come for us at any stage, whether you're walking down the street today or going off on a big adventure, that it could be the last task that you do. You know, that's how unfortunate it is when it comes to death. So from that day, you know, right up until today, I've, I've lived by this five-year plan that I sit down and I, I tell myself, right, it is all over in five years. You are done. That's your death. What do you want to achieve now between here and your death? Like in the next five years, what do you really want to do with your last five? And I'll get a pencil out and I'll write down everything that I want to do between now and my death. And typically when you ask that question honestly, you're not going to you know, be answering stuff about your career in 15 years or hope to get that mortgage done in 27. It's going to be what do you really want to achieve as a personal ambition as in terms of your, your goals, your dreams, aspirations, all that stuff. So all that starts to come out. All right, now you've got this little list. Like, okay, I've got that. I've got five years to do it all. Maybe I won't be able to, but I'm going to just have a look at that and I'm going to try and splice a bit of that into my current life. That doesn't mean you have to run off into the bush and and wear a bloody hair shirt and and go all hippie. It just means it's time to splice a bit of health and happiness into your life. So that means you're changing how your life is set up. If the mortgage is killing you, maybe it's time to reevaluate that. Change your environment to where you can live a more, you know, free life where you might have some more hours to do what you really want to do. So that's what I typically do. And I'll, I'll do that often if I am on a sketchy adventure, so the last time I did that was on the Tasman Row, as we were just about back um, to, to uh, Malakuta where we came in, I asked myself that question, I wrote all that down. So it'll come about when there is a bit of a, a point in life where you're asking yourself those deep internal questions, or it can come about every new year. This can be your little habits, all right, now, honestly, like really honestly, you convince yourself it's all over in five, what do you want to do? And yeah, you can really splice a bit of health and happiness into your life. And so for me, when I asked myself that question, what come up was a South Pole continental crossing. So I'd grown up reading about these polar explorers, Shackleton, Amundsen, Scott, you know, these stoic men of old. And I've always wanted to know if I have inside me what they had, you know, that just that strength. So a South Pole attempt is in that five-year plan. I've also got another one that I'm putting together this year, which is um, – a custom-made little rowboat with a big solar outboard and panels all over it. We're going to take up to the Kimberley, hopefully in July, if we can get the build done to go a little 1,500-kilometre circuit from Wyndham to Broome. So that's just a little domestic trip for this year. And what else was in that one? There was an Everest attempt in there and a couple other micro ones that fluctuate in and out depending on COVID restrictions and, and everything else. But like I said, that doesn't mean you should look at that and go, oh, that's not achievable. You start to evaluate the life you've currently got and are you moving towards that? And if there's no possible way for you to ever achieve those dreams and aspirations in your current existence and what you're doing, then it's time to make some changes. It's going to be a busy five years by the sound of it. Massive. 
(laughs) (laughs) And is there like one takeaway from all your adventures that really helps you out in day-to-day life? Um, Oh, mate, there's there's a whole bunch. I mean, I've been doing this stuff for quite a long time now. And I guess I am one of the lucky ones that I've found what I love to do and I can just make a living out of it, you know, begging and scraping a bit. But, oh, geez, over those years, the biggest one was about c- confronting death. That's that big lesson from the mountains. That alone keeps me on the path. So anytime I hear about an accident or someone dying or, you know, some skin cancer or whatever, taking someone out, I go, right, it's just, it's always there. Am I, am I, being lazy at the moment, I'm procrastinating. Am I sitting there watching four back-to-back episodes on Netflix when I should be out planning and reading something? So that's always a like a drill sergeant there is just yelling at me, you know, don't waste time. But along the way, I mean, I endured so much suffering on the first big ocean row that I completed across the Atlantic. That was 55 days of rowing two hours on, two hours off. So that level of suffering and endurance I'd never been through before. And on that, I you know, had to come up with ways to handle that abuse and, and being grateful for that suffering on that trip helped turn the volume down, the intensity of that suffering helped me get through. So that lesson, whenever I'm kicking around in life and it gets a bit stressful or hard, you just got to flip that switch in your mind and say, you know, how good is this? I'm, I'm grateful for this. I'm getting through it. I'm going to plan my next big trip. So that was a, a good lesson as well. During the, the big Gobi Desert expedition, um, communication was a massive thing because we're doing this monotonous task of dragging across a desert 12 hours a day with not much you know, visual stimulation. So we started bickering and fighting as a team a little bit and we had to come up with some way of, of dealing with those issues so it didn't implode on the expedition. And by simply sitting down in the sand every couple of weeks and airing our frustrations, you know, without personal attack, just getting it all out, um, that really helped us strengthen as a team and got us through that expedition. So that communication factor I've taken into my marriage and life in general and anybody I meet, I'm very open with how I communicate about everything. So if something is giving me you know, the shits or whatever, I just knock it on the head straight away, bring it up and talk about it. Um, but yeah, like over the years, mate, every expedition has had these new little insights along the way. And I guess that's one of the most beautiful things about these big adventures. You don't know the guy you're going to be at the end of it, what you're going to learn along the way and and how you're going to see the world once you're done. And when you're out there talking in the corporate world to the large organisations, are you finding there's always like a common theme coming forward? Like you've obviously got organisations trying to build their teams, get more cohesive teamwork happening. Do you see any common threads when you're talking to these large organisations about your adventures and how they can apply it in the, the corporate world? Yeah, absolutely, mate. I mean, a lot of big companies are always just trying to develop, one, a passion for what you're doing, so a passion for business or the task you've got going on, but almost trying to build almost like an expedition team in their company, which is going to be just this massive benefit to whatever product or task they're taking to the market. And I think that's why these adventure stories, not just the lessons you learn along the way, that can help people in life in general. But by driving home these these issues about, you know, are you doing something you love? How's your life outside of work? Is that is that really driving you forward? Because if you're happy outside doing things you love to do, you will work your ass off in your job, you know, better than you've ever done because you're always trying to do these external things as well. So I think whenever they try and 
say, well, can you can you talk about leadership and can you talk about you know resilience and stuff like that? They're all fantastic attributes to have, but they come out of experiences in life. Resilience is an accumulation of experiences over time. So if your if your workers or employees or anyone in in the company or your family isn't out there doing these experiences, then it's very hard to accrue those attributes that you listen and hear about from famous sports stars and explorers and like, oh, that's cool. How do I do that? You have to get out there and and do these things. You know, fill up that list when you ask yourself the five-year question, go out and do it. Then what you might typically see, especially in a huge corporation or any big companies, people will do that and you might lose a few along the way. They go, oh, I don't need this job. I'm going to go off and live in the bush. Beautiful. That's probably not the person you wanted in your structure anyway. The ones that go, oh, these are what I want to do now. I'm going to work my butt off this year, save up this money, knock the drink on the head, quit the smokes because at the end of the year, I'm going to take four weeks and go climb a mountain in Nepal. They're the people you want in your company, you know. So there's a big benefit there to this stuff. Yeah, no, good advice, Luke. Look, it's been really great to chat to you today. How can people follow you and your adventures or maybe even if they wanted a copy of your book, how can they go about keeping in touch with you? Absolutely. You can go to um, Olock Adventures. So it's one life, one chance adventures.com, Olock Adventures. All my stuff is on there. You'll find all my social links on there. If you want either of my books, One Life, One Chance or the recent one, Vodka and Sandstorms, it's anywhere you buy your books, all through Amazon, Audible, Kindle, wherever. Um, or if you want a signed copy, just grab it through my website. Too easy. Well, thanks, Luke. Everyone here at Stowe really wishes you well with your upcoming adventures and we'll look forward to the next chapter. Awesome. Thanks, Craig. Thanks for having me on, mate. Thanks, buddy. 